Welcome back to the 15 on the 15th, our bite-sized book club series featuring podcasts designed to help you digest short articles, no more than 15 minutes of reading required. This 15-minute recipe for success is a pinch of insightful reading and a dash of engaging discussion that blends together research and classroom practice. My name is Katie LaShawn, and I am the director of the English as a New Language program at the University of Notre Dame. I'm joined today by our program coordinators, Jenny Dees and Claire Roach. Hi, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to chat about 12 ways to support English learners in the mainstream classroom from one of our favorite websites, Cult of Pedagogy. I don't know about y'all, but I often get asked for kind of what is the top 10 list of working with English language learners. And I'm usually hesitant to provide my thoughts because in my opinion, there are multiple factors at play here, including the language level of the student, what is his or her proficiency in their L1 or their first language, what are their number of years in formal schooling, um, and what school supports are provided among many other factors. Thus, I tend to shy away from kind of this comprehensive toolbox idea. With this being said, I actually found this list to be pretty comprehensive. I did too. I think she hit upon some really important themes for teachers to remember and things that you can try that will really make a difference um, in the success of your English learners in your classroom. I really appreciated that she addressed the reality of many of our Catholic school teachers who are encountering English language learners in their mainstream classroom Mm -hmm. and may just initially feel overwhelmed and need some go-to strategies. And I think there's some really great things to begin with here and then to build on as you get to know your students and their needs. Absolutely. I think one thing to think about that is clear through all of these themes is that we are all language teachers. So kind of the theme that runs through all 12 of these, uh, which we're going to go ahead and group together for you, um, is the fact that we are all language teachers and we are responsible for learning language ourselves, loving language ourselves, and imparting language in every single aspect of our classroom. Right. And I think as I looked at all these strategies, um, what was also obvious was that they were going to benefit every student in the classroom, most especially our English learners, but every student. So these are great practices to try. I completely agree. Do you guys mind if I start jumping into these? I'm just excited to start talking about them. Um, So Obviously, number one is number one for a reason. Make it visual. It's something very easy to do in the classroom and something that we can often overlook, but providing students with a visual support is essential when we're introducing vocabulary. But also, this gave me pause to think about how do I use visual supports in terms of pictures and modeling Mm -hmm. gestures when I'm just going over classroom procedures that not only should I do it when I'm introducing the science vocabulary, but as I'm introducing how the norms of our classroom unfold, I should also be incorporating those supports for students. So I wanted to give you three really good examples that I've seen just in the last two weeks teachers do. Um, One of them is that I watched my son's kindergarten teacher while I was in there doing centers start the reading lesson with her small group by saying, okay, guys, let's take a picture walk. That's the first thing we always do. And she literally had the kids point to each of the pictures in the little reader before they started reading. Wanted to blow a kiss to her brain. It's great practice to use. So really utilizing the visuals that are already embedded in your lessons. Mm -hmm. And Claire, I would argue you can do that in the upper school grades as well. Absolutely. 
think of picture walk as something we do in the kindergarten classroom or early elementary, but why not pull out that eighth grade social studies textbook and go through and look at the headings and look at the images and discuss the graphs and the charts that you see. I think that's such a valuable opportunity to introduce so many concepts before mm -hmm. you dive into the meat of the text. Absolutely, and I think that hits on something that we'll talk about in a little bit, but the idea of front-loading, the idea yes. that we need to do these things on the onset, what is what you both mentioned, is that these things are really helpful. I always think about our brain being a file folder, our system for file folders, and for all of our children, they need to know where information needs to be filed, but I always say your English language learner really explicitly needs to know which file folder to open up in their brain because essentially we know that they're not devoid of content knowledge. They're incredibly bright children. They just need to know how to map what is new onto what they already have in that particular manila folder, be it related to orchards or something in science or triangles in math. Um, they just need to actually visually know where to put that. And make that connection. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Another example is just last week, I actually used this in my own classroom. You guys know the way I teach. I use a lot of gestures. So reinforcing vocabulary with a simple hand gesture that helps indicate to students um, what the meaning of that word is. Generally, the students love it because it gets their blood pumping. Um, having students get up and actually model the instructions physically. So I wanted my students to, to do a communicative activity and I had two of them get up and show the students what the first step was, the second step, what the third step was. And then the final um, idea I wanted to share with teachers for using visuals is uh, Google Slides. And of course, it's free, it's readily available. I cannot imagine teaching without using Google Slides anymore. Um, and this is the reason. If you've never used a Google Slide, just try it. You can import photos from the web in a second. So you go to import the photo, you put in your keyword, and endless photos come up that I can then quickly insert into a slideshow. So for example, if I'm revisiting a lesson, if I already have my slides put together, then every time I say the word or revisit the concept, I've got a visual on the screen that the students can connect to. I really encourage you to try this because you have to do it once or twice, work with the Google Sites to realize just how easy it is. Um, you know, you can put them together in, in a matter, sometimes in just seconds. Um, but it really does make a difference when, when kids are seeing a concept and they're not just having to hear it. Absolutely. I, to build on that, I really recommend that teachers often take those Google Slides or PowerPoint if you're like me and you're still a little bit um, in the Microsoft PowerPoint realm and print those actual slides ah. and put them in a binder for reference in mm -hmm. your centers or something that maybe even sits on the desk of your English language learner so they're constantly able to refer back to, so to take those images and label them. Um, also for your ELLs, just taking and printing those slides and you can print them in, in handout format or whatever. So mm -hmm. you essentially have made flashcards for your student that can go home off of something they've already seen in the classroom. On the idea of making it visual, uh, one thing that has occurred to me a lot lately is not just with vocabulary, but specifically with writing. I think that oftentimes we're hesitant to give children really model exemplars of writing because we want them to come to, we don't want them to just copy things, right? Right. Um, but honestly, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately to our teachers. If a child can actually see something that's written and constructed incredibly well, I'm okay with letting them 
kind of copy that format and make it their own so they can learn the word word order, proper syntax, and things like that. So actually thinking about making writing more visual to our children as well. I think those are great points. I'm going to kind of stretch us in another another direction, thinking about this idea of front-loading things, which was really highlighted by number eight, and then visuals. But also when we think about the vocabulary that we need to introduce in the classroom, sometimes we're overwhelmed as we look for tier one, tier two, tier three words. And Claire and I have been discussing this a lot this week, but the idea of the essential. What is the essential vocabulary we need? Um, And so I think as I was looking at these two ideas, number six also came to play, um, looking at culturally unique vocabulary. So as you look at your vocabulary words that you may want to put into slides and support with a visual image or print out for students, what of that vocabulary is particularly unique to our traditional English classroom? And um, do students have to know in order to express their content knowledge? So what is absolutely essential? So I thought that was a good point also included in the article. Yeah, I like to think of that vocabulary as non-negotiable. What vocabulary is non-negotiable in this unit or in this lesson? They must know and be able to use. And then what vocabulary will help support their understanding so that they can access all these big ideas? You know, this front-loading as a high school teacher, for me, was a concept that... um, I was, I have to confess, I was not super familiar with. Um, And it's probably been one of the most transformational ideas for me as a teacher of English learners. The idea, my my mindset had been, I teach my lesson, and then for kids who need some intervention or remediation, I pull them aside and help to get them up to speed. But of course, front-loading is the idea that I take those kids that I know might be vulnerable for whatever reason and making sure that I give them the tools that they need so that when I actually present my lesson, they can understand and access the ideas that I want them to be able to access. So, um, you know, a lot of this visual support that we mentioned, like, for example, images, once I pulled those together, in future years, I have those at my disposal. So being able to pre-teach some of that vocabulary so that when it's time for my lesson, they know what it is that I'm talking about has been one of my biggest bang for the buck teaching strategies that um, I'll never go back to my old way of teaching. Absolutely. Something that, so Jenny, to summarize, Jenny has touched on number one, make it visual. Number six, look out for culturally unique vocabulary. And number eight, pre-teach when possible. So I think we can kind of, in a way, kind of wrap that up a little bit in terms of vocabulary, front-loading, and how to do that. So our takeaway for you this week would be, in your lessons, pick out your vocabulary that are essential, those that are culturally relevant. The ones that were in the uh, article here included something like a picture of a jukebox or a clothing rack. Um, So looking for words that are really culturally kind of regional to your area or just regional Mm -hmm. to the United States, regionalized United States. Um, But we want you to try this week to include images with your vocabulary, gestures, think about what is essential, um, and do those things visually uh, with a video um, and try to front load them. And I think to remember that um, your growth as a teacher happens over time. So I would say this week, try and add a couple more visuals. And every week you're adding a little bit more, every year you're adding a little bit more. And and I bet if we were to talk to you again in in three years, you would have incredibly robust visual resources at your fingertips. So start today. 
All right, ladies, I'm going to go ahead and jump to number two and number seven. Number two says build in more group work. And number seven says use sentence frames to give students practice with academic language. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to combine those two. Uh, it may make sense in my brain, so let me see if I can talk y'all all through this. Um, number two says build in more group work. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of a classroom that is orderly and full of listening and quiet. However, I'm always wary when I walk into a classroom full of English language learners and, there, and it is quiet and it is silent and there's not a lot of talking because we know that our English language learners need practice speaking. Mm -hmm. Speaking is a way that we clarify our thoughts. And if we can clarify our thoughts and get some of our vocabulary right. words out, then we are able to write. It brings me to, to the idea of the four domains of language, which I know we've talked about before. But there are four domains of language. The ability to speak, to listen, to read, and to write. And so I want you to think about this week. How can you build in more group work, but how can that group work also be linked to the four domains of language? How are your lessons incorporating all four? What so, do y'all think before I jump to sentence frames? Well, one of the things that jumped out at me um, in the article was just the reminder that when you give students the opportunity to work in small groups, you're giving them the opportunity to practice the language in a much less anxiety-filled setting because they're not worried about you calling on them and having to speak in front of the class. They're just speaking quietly to appear. And we all know from our own um, attempts at learning second languages, the more relaxed we are, the better we are at being able to access that language. So giving kids the opportunity to kind of really engage with the language um, with their peers in our classrooms, not just that one-on-one -on -one the teacher calls on you and it's your turn, but um, more total participation techniques. Claire, I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important for that total or total participation. But also, building on that, it's so important. These kids have to be able to speak. All children need to be able to speak as a pre-writing strategy. And so often we assess students through writing. And if we don't give them an opportunity to speak before they do it, mm -hmm. I go back to that idea. Is that assessment really valid? Have we given them an opportunity to unpack that knowledge before we ask them to demonstrate mastery? So just essential. Absolutely. And to your point, Jenny, the idea of demonstrating mastery often in our classrooms comes down to the proper usage of academic language. And so a lot of times we will if we do allow them to speak, we don't actually scaffold academic language, nor do we model academic language for our students. So my connection to number seven here, which is using sentence frames, is the fact that we are responsible for using your words, Claire, helping students engage, interact, and use um, mm -hmm. academic language. So I strongly encourage you, whenever we have students speak in groups, saying, beautiful, I want you to speak for two minutes, and I want you to use these two sentence starters. I agree with Claire's points because, or I mm -hmm. think an equilateral triangle is, I feel that the points of this war mm -hmm. included. We need to actually scaffold language if we expect it to be used. Yeah, one of my favorite little strategies is quote me. And I like it because it really um, drives home how to use quotation marks and commas, but asking students to turn to a partner and quote Mrs. Roach. Um, so Mrs. Roach just said, and then I use my hands to, to gesture what the comma looks like and my fingers to gesture those quotation marks. Mrs. Roach just said, and then try and reiterate, right? 
make a synopsis. Give me the gist of what it is that I want you to learn. Kids love it because they like to quote me, to be totally honest, point out all the silly things I say. Well, and I also, I love that activity, Claire. Can I just add, can I just add one thing? Sometimes we think of group work as big, extensive, group, complicated, you know, oftentimes group work can be two minutes to be able to turn and talk to a partner. It does not have to be, you know, something that I spent three hours creating. It's the opportunity to unpack what it is that you just heard or read. And when you clearly set up what you expect the students to do in group work, which sentence frames help you do, or if you're listing academic vocabulary on the board, then sometimes the classroom management that we get anxious about when we Mm -hmm. hear the term group work, it goes away because kids are focused on exactly what they need to do and they, they'll they fall into that and you'll be amazed by the conversation and the management issues are just not there anymore. So. Yeah, that was pretty transformational. I'm, I'm letting out all my secrets of my bad teaching in my, in my past, ladies, but, um, you know, when I would ask a question and 10 hands would go up and I'd call on one person. Now, if I have a question and 10 hands go up, 10 kids clearly have something to say. Turn to your partner. Tell them what you're thinking. We'll circle back up in 90 seconds. And I didn't used to do that. Um, And the more I do it, the better I I get. And the more the kids become used to, that's the way we operate in this classroom. We learn with each other, not just with our teacher. All right, ladies, we spend a lot of time advocating for the importance of group work in the classroom, but her point number four was to honor the silent period. (laughs) So how do we do that in a classroom that also values collaboration among the students? That is an excellent question. I mean, I think it's just coming back to remembering that there are five stages of language acquisition and that children progress through it. So even though it's honoring the silent period, There are certainly ways to make the child feel involved in the classroom, but to acknowledge that when you're in that first and maybe even second stage of language acquisition, you're able to produce kind of isolated words. So Mm -hmm. how can I, through my sentence frame, maybe it's me giving you photo cards or me giving Mm -hmm. you the two or three words, but also honoring the fact that you're using your listening skills more than you're able to use your productive language. And I always say this is the stage when it's most important to smile and help that child work through the discomfort of feeling like he or she can't communicate in the language of the classroom yet. Absolutely. And I was just in a classroom last week where we had an eighth grade student from Burma who we are in eighth grade science and he is certainly in the first, maybe second stage of language acquisition. And so his vocabulary was incredibly limited. But in his first language, Mm. what an incredibly bright, capable, gifted child. And so just through the use of some translation, so the teacher was very wonderful and helped him to access, they were talking about um, forms of energy, allowed him to go online, read something in his first language about that. She brought him back and he had picture cards, but he had kind of just the seven general ideas. But we started with hot and he talked about things that were hot and tried to move through energy, but just the idea that he didn't sit through that entire 45-minute period, not aware of what was happening. She used his first language, and she honored the silent period in that particular child. My question would be, you're listening to us, you're hearing this, you're obviously invested in this for your students. How do we do this across the whole school, especially in our Catholic schools where very often we don't have the ESL teacher, which was number 
We're looking at number three now, uh, which is communicate with the ESL teacher. What does that look like for the reality of our mainstream classrooms? Well, I think one, I, I think generally it calls us to work as a team in our Catholic schools. Um, and I think you start by remembering that your English learners are a gift to your school. These kids' brains are doing twice the work. I was reminded of this last week when I had to teach a preschool class in Spanish, just how much energy it takes to be navigating two languages. Um, so to look at these children and admire the workings of their brain instead of getting too hung up on um, the challenges and the barriers that they face in our classroom. And, and that calls us to work together as a team, for teachers to be mindful of talking to other teachers. What are you learning in your class right now? What kind of vocabulary are you promoting? Is there anything that I can do to help um, support that language learning in my classroom too. It means working with gym teachers and art teachers. It means working with secretaries and school custodians. Um, so that getting back to what you said initially, Katie, that everybody in the school sees themselves as a teacher of language in the school. Absolutely, I think it's bringing up number four, honoring the silent period as well as number five, scaffolding with native language. I think our entire school would benefit, schools would benefit from knowing here are the five stages. So maybe we, we want to push this to you. Advocate for a several faculty meetings beyond the topic of English language learners. Can you talk about the five stages? Um, to self-promote slightly, we have a series of webinars on our website that we have heard from principals repeatedly that they are using kind of these webinars to be points of conversation in a faculty meeting. I want to bridge just quickly here to um, a number 11 and number 12, because I think this is what you're saying, Claire. Number 11 says, show your students how to take themselves less seriously, mm -hmm. but also take them very seriously. And, you know, we often hear, oh, our English language learners, sometimes you'll hear, I take, not always, sometimes you'll hear, it's so cute how hard they're trying. That is incredibly true, but cute is not necessarily the word um, I would use. So how do we help them to see themselves as very serious, capable learners? And yet at the same time, how do we show as a school that it's wonderful to learn another language and that I'm going to make mistakes and I'm trying? Um, I just thought those were quick connections we could make there. Going along with this idea, I'm hearing school culture. You see these kids as an additive. You're willing to all engage in this process of acquiring language. I think we also need to tap into their culture. And number nine comes to mind. We have to spend time getting to know these students mm -hmm. and their families. Where are they really from? We just can't make these general statements of these children are from Burma, these children are from Mexico. What What is unique and special to their cultural heritage and how can we celebrate in that? that in our school. We need to really be intentional about as a faculty diving in and researching that um, and the best resource to begin with are the families that are engaged in our school community. So I think on the school culture level, school culture level there's a lot that we can be doing. I have a lot to say on this topic and I know we don't have a lot of time so I'm putting the plug in now that I think this needs to be the topic of a future conversation here for 15 and the 15th. I want to leave you with a very small example that my school where I teach happens to be doing and I think um, the message that it transmits on this topic is really important. We decided as a school that everyone in the school was going to learn to say the sign of the cross in Spanish. And it started with our principal, 
who speaks very little Spanish. And she had the courage to get on the PA system every morning and struggle through in el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. And the cutest thing is when she says, students, aren't I getting, I'm getting much better at this, <laughs> aren't I? It's so hard to learn a second language. I admire all of you students who can do this in two languages. What a gift. Those little comments every couple days or weeks, not to mention that when you walk into our school and you're a native Spanish speaker and you hear that's how we start the day, no matter what language we speak at home, um, these are really powerful messages about what we think is important, about who we are, about the joy and the, and the awesomeness of being able to speak more than one language. So I think there are little symbolic things you can do um, to transmit really big core ideas. Um, so I challenge you to do that. I think our call to you this week is to look at these 12 items mm-hmm. and see which of these little things that you can implement. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear how this is shaking out for you in your classroom. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. If you are passionate about ensuring that culturally and linguistically diverse children are thriving in your Catholic school, we invite you to learn more about our English as a New Language program on our website, ENL. .nd.edu. On our website, you may learn more about becoming a Hernandez Fellow. Our applications opened on October 1st, as well as our professional development opportunities, both online and at your school, as well as resources, including podcasts, articles, and webinars. Be sure to check out our new series of online professional development modules. We also want to make a plug here for our Latino Enrollment Institute. We are part of the larger Catholic School Advantage campaign and our applications for having your school come and learn about ways to increase your Latino enrollment opened on November 1st. Um, So we'd love to hear from you in multiple ways. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. So leave a review for us on iTunes and let us know what topics you'd like for us to cover in the future. Many blessings on your important work. Thank you.